when you ultimately decided to, to get into real estate, how did you decide, well, I, I think I have some skills to be able to do this? There's risks and there's calculated risks, yeah. right? And, and it seems like you know, you're, you're taking some large risks. Hello listeners, I'm Drew Sigfordson, Managing Director of The Bolus Company and today's guest host on The Bolus Beat. Uh, today we welcome Jonathan Culley from Redfern Properties. Jonathan is a, a client and a, and a good friend. Jonathan Culley is the founder of Redfern Properties based in Portland, Maine. Redfern is a real estate development company focused on developing innovative residential properties throughout the city. Notable projects include the Hiawatha, 89 Anderson Street, Munjoy Heights, and West End Place. He has extensive business, investment, and real estate expertise, oversees matters related to construction, financing, and development, and is also recently involved in the Mercy uh, redevelopment project in Portland's West End. Prior to founding Redfern in 2005, Jonathan served as senior associate of Boeing Ventures, venture capital arm of Boeing Company, based in Seattle, Washington. He was director of financial planning and analysis for TerraBeam Corporation, received a AB in Duke University and an MBA from Fuqua, their school of business. So welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Drew. Happy to be here. So you, you were originally from Portland, That's right? right. Yep. And you went to Duke, and uh, what made you go to Seattle? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I grew up in Falmouth, went to Falmouth High School, um, and I often tell people that I spent most of my childhood figuring out how to get out of Maine. Uh, so I went to Duke in North Carolina, wanted to get far away. Um, after that, I did what most, or, or, or at least many, uh, recent college grads do, is I went to New York City and, uh, and took a job in Manhattan. I was working in consulting. Um, a few years hence, I was kind of tired of New York, and one of my consulting clients was in Seattle and offered me a job, and I went and moved there sight unseen. It was meant to be a year or two until I went back to business school. Um, and so I met my wife, Catherine, um, during that year or two, um, and one year turned into six or seven. And so um, stayed in, in Seattle for a while, um, did my grad school while I was out there. Um, and uh, we had our first child in 2004, and this sort of instinct to get out of Maine um, you know, took a full 180 and, and, and the instinct uh, became, how do we get back to Maine to raise a family? Um, and at the same time, you know, both my wife and I had careers in Seattle. Uh, and so we did a lot of soul searching and we decided that Maine was where we wanted to be, where we wanted to raise our family. Um, and at the same time, thinking wanted to take a much more entrepreneurial bent in, in my career. As you said, I had worked for um, Boeing um, and we were in a little venture capital group. So um, there were some entrepreneurial activities that we were um, involved in, but at the same time we were constrained by this behemoth bureaucracy of a Fortune, you know, a Fortune 50 company. Um, and so I decided I didn't want to sit in a lot of meetings um, and didn't want to be constrained by um, these bureaucratic tendencies. And, and so um, really wanted to be in business for myself yep. um, and, and, and in partnership with, with my wife who had her own business in Seattle that, that she gave up. Um, so we came to Maine and um, and knew we wanted to be entrepreneurs, weren't sure that it was real estate. Um, and so I have a funny story. I was sort of knocking around town, talking to people, and um, uh, a family friend uh, introduced me to Joe Bolas, and, uh, and he invited me to come in and talk to him. And, and um, you know, wonderfully generous 
uh, gracious guy. I'm, I'm sure he doesn't remember the conversation because I was a nobody and, and he was, uh, you know, uh, the titan of, of Maine's real estate community. But, but so I sat with him and, and he gave me uh, lots of advice. One piece of advice I'll, I'll never forget, which is he told me, great if you want to be a real estate developer in Portland, but you got to have a day job. That is, it's such a cyclical business that you'll never make it uh, working full time as a real estate developer. For him, his day job was was his brokerage, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that allowed him to to become a very very successful developer when the time was right. Um, well, 15, 15 years hence, and I still haven't had a day job. So so I you know the, <laughs> the most the, the most poignant piece of advice he gave me, I, 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 I for, for for some reason chose not to take, and and. Um, you know, there were certainly moments, uh, you know, during the, the Great Recession where I certainly wished I had a day job, yeah. um, but, but here we are. Yeah, well, that's an interesting story, which was unscripted. I didn't even know that story, yeah. so that, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So um, when you ultimately decided to, to get into real estate um, with your wife, mm -hmm. uh, how did you decide, well, I, I think I have some skills to be able to do this, and, yeah, and, yeah, that, and what was your first project? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, you know, my background was in general business. I mean, you know, I, I had a, you know, was a, was a recently minted MBA, um, you know, had been director of finance for a, an entrepreneurial technology company, had done some venture capital. So, so I had a general business background, had no real estate background except for um, my wife and I bought a house in a gentrifying neighborhood in, in Seattle. Uh, we bought the house in 2001 and scraped together every last penny we could come up with to, you know, to buy it. Um, and you know, we're sort of weekend warriors and, and, and really rode a wave of, of gentrification in the neighborhood that we were in and sold it in 2005 and, and um, you know, didn't make a fortune but did really well, um, you know, certainly relative to what we had started with. And, and sure. so, so had a couple hundred thousand dollars and said, all right, you know, we're going to start a real estate business. Um, and that was after sort of looking at a, a lot of different business opportunities in, in, in Maine. Um, but sort of settled on real estate and said, let's give it a go. Yeah. Um, so the first project that we did is, is we bought um, a rundown apartment house on Neal Street in the West End. Um, we bought it in late 2005. Um, I remember the deal, uh, you know, the, the appraisal didn't come in at the, the last moment and, and I had never experienced that before, didn't know what to do and went back to the seller and asked for a second mortgage, a guy named Carl Smith who was, um, uh, you know, a, another wonderful gracious guy who had been kicking around real estate in, in Portland for a long time. Um, and so bought that building and converted it into 12 condominiums. Um, and this was pre-mortgage crisis. So uh, we were selling condominiums in 2006. Um, to people in their 20s who were getting loans for 103% of the purchase price. Wow. Um, and they were showing up at closing and getting checks. You know, it, yeah. it was, you know, it, yeah. in, in retrospect, it was a sure sign that we were about to run off a cliff where people were buying property and they were getting paid to do it. Um, and so, you know, fascinating project uh, on a gross margin basis. I still say that it was our most profitable project yet. Um, wow. Yeah, we sort of did a, a, a timing. Gut, gut rehab. Our, our, our timing was exquisite and, mm -hmm. and, and we were lucky. Um, there's a lot of luck involved in this and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. But, yeah, but, right. but success in real estate, um, you got to be good, but you got to be lucky too. Yeah. Um, and, and at this moment, we were pretty lucky. Well, having a, a first project like that, which is a home run, really gives you a, a, a taste for it and a sense, maybe a, a false sense that you're good at it. Oh and, yeah. And that, and that you can really do this. Uh, yeah. In this case, it, it proved right. You, we, are, you are good at it. Well, we were, we were, sold, we were sold from that moment on. That, you know, that was when I sort of, you know, 
um, crossed the Great Divide and, and became forever a real estate developer. Yeah, that's great. Now, how do you, um, you know, and since, since then, uh, you've done several condominium developments. Mm -hmm. That was really how you, how you got your start, yeah. I would say, is um, first through a couple of uh, rehabilitation projects yeah. of, of older buildings, and then you transitioned into, into ground-up developments. Yeah. Um, what, what do you look for, and, and how, do you, how do you approach you know, uh, development and, and what you think will make a good development uh, or not, you know? Yeah, so uh, good question. I think, um, you know, first off, I, I would, you know, we're focused on residential multifamily in, in Portland and have been since the beginning. We sort of dabbled in single family a little bit, but that was sort of a, you know, an, an aside. Um, we're looking to create really high quality urban residences, and that's been the theme for the 15 years that we've been at this. Um, we really look for opportunities for placemaking, which is, um, you know, how can we make the neighborhoods better? How, by virtue of our developments, can we make these locations even more appealing than they already are? Um, and so it's, it's really, you know, a, a focus on good, smart growth infill development um, because we think that's what people want. That's what the market's looking for. I mean, the, the, the urban walkable neighborhood is, is sort of the ultimate living experience right now. And we've seen, you know, pretty dramatic shifts and trends um, you know, back in from the suburbs into the cities. And, and of course, we're lucky to have a wonderful, wonderful city in Portland that's a very, very desirable place to live. Yeah. And you've transitioned a little bit, right? You, you focused on condominium developments yeah. and then transitioned into multifamily apartments, uh, which, you, which you hold on to. Yeah. Um, why, why that pivot? Yeah, I wouldn't say a little bit. I would say, you know, we're, we're, we've made a, made, a, made, a, made a full shift. Um, you know, at first... We had to get paid, um, and so um, you know you started the, the, with very little capital. We started with little capital, and the beauty of condominium projects is you get paid pretty quickly. Um, you know that said, then you got to pay a lot of taxes, and then you got to move on, and you got to find the next deal to get paid. Um, and um, so you know we did a, a handful of of sort of um, uh, gut rehab um, condominium projects, um, you know th through the city, and then. Um, in 2010 or 11, we, we built our, our first new construction project, which is a, a condominium on, on York Street in Portland called Harborview Townhomes. Um, really cool project, won yeah. some architectural awards, you know, really, really innovative um, and, and something that we're really, really proud of. Um, and, and, and so that was a successful project. At the same time, it was about you know, 2012 or 2013, um, we really started looking at the trends, the things that were going on in, in, in the city. Um, and one of the things that was happening is rents were rising fast. Um, and um, somebody mentioned to me uh, a HUD program. He said, you know, I, was, I had a project in, in the West End at the corner of Pine and Bracket that I was looking at and sort of exploring what the condominium project would look like. And um, a, a broker I know mentioned to me, he said, well, you ought to look at this HUD 221-D4 program, uh, which is mortgage financing for uh, multifamily apartments. Um, and at the time, the rates were pretty low, and you get a 40-year AM, and it's um, you know, non-recourse. And I sort of looked at it, and, and for the first time, sort of penciled out a rental project. Um, and keep in mind, at the time, nobody had built market-rate rental housing in Portland. In decades. In decades. Yeah. You know, almost like, if you look at the housing stock in Except Portland. Except for affordable housing. Right, right. If you look at the built environment, I mean, you know, most of the apartments were built between 1890 and 1920, and we, you know, we have no idea what their pro formas look like or where the capital came from. Um, it's just sort of, you know, in, in the distant past. 
But since then, there had been very, very little. There was the Backhove Towers, but that was built with some subsidy. Um, and so nobody had done this. Um, and I started thinking about why has nobody done this? Um, you know, capital is, tends to be pretty smart and pretty efficient, and, and, and capital finds opportunities. So um, it's likely that, it, you know, the, the economics never worked. Uh, what we saw from 2010 to 2015 was a pretty dramatic increase in rents in Portland. That's been pretty well documented. People, you know, it's between 30 and 40 percent. Yeah, significant so, change. Yeah. So, so, so toward the end of that sort of period, um, what we had were we still had construction prices that were kind of reflective of the prior recession, the Great Recession that we we're coming out of, um, but the rents were accelerating. Um, and so there was this moment in 2013, 14, 15, where we built the vast majority of our units where there was a very, very favorable environment um, for building multifamily rental housing. Yeah. Um, and, and fortunately for us, you know, nobody else was sort of you know, seizing that opportunity. And, and so you know, the three large buildings that we've built um, you know, to this day, although J.B. Brown now has a project under construction, but to this day remain the only newer you know, class A large scale um, apartment developments in Portland. Yeah. Well, you had the benefit of, you know, the city of Portland is, is, a, is a smaller community. You don't have a lot of national developers right. th that are looking to, yep. to build here. You also have constrained geography and a, and a lot of those local relationships yep. that, that really are critical when, when buying a piece of land or finding a, a site in which to build because it is so densely developed. Yep. And those three projects that you mentioned, it, it seems like, you know, really it, it hit on... Uh, Low land cost on a per unit basis. Yep. Attractive interest rates. Yep. And again, you know, timing. Yep. Right. How critical that is with the with the increasing rental rate market. Yep. And those all three projects filled quickly, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, we hit we hit the moment right. And and frankly, I you know, there's still the demand. But what I've been struggling to do since, and and we started construction in Hiawatha on roughly you know January first, two thousand sixteen. Opened it and in the fall of 2017. Um, we've been unfortunately less active since. Last year we completed a, a townhouse, you know, three bedroom rental townhomes down in East Bayside, which is a, a smaller project that we're really proud of, um, but sort of a different animal. We've been struggling to sort of recreate those economics um, and it's been really, really challenging. And, and the reason that it's challenging is, is what? So you... Well, so, so let me give you an example. I mean, you're, you're really your inputs are, you know, your, your development cost, your rents and your interest rates. Um, and since 2015, when we were really sort of underwriting or conceiving of the Hiawatha project, so at that moment, the rents were about $2.60 a square foot, and that's per month per square foot for, for apartments. Um, and the construction costs for Hiawatha were about 200 bucks a square foot, okay? And, and you know, the rates were, were low, they're, they're low now, so, so let's call that sort of a wash. Um, there's a project that you're aware of recently. We've been trying to create, a, trying to to to, um, to develop a high-rise project um, in downtown Portland in Old Port. It's a wonderful, wonderful location, and will be an a, a amazing project if and when we get it done. Um, but here are the economics we're looking at. So the the rents have gone from say two dollars and sixty cents a foot to maybe two seventy-five, two eighty a foot. Okay, so the, they're up, you know, seven eight percent since beginning of 2016. Mm -hmm. um, the construction costs. Have gone from 200 bucks a foot to 325 bucks a foot. So rents are up maybe 10 percent. Construction costs are up 50 percent plus since the Hiawatha. Yeah. Now, um, 
I'm pleased to say the Hiawatha was a wonderful deal with, 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 you know, with very favorable economics. And, and frankly, in hindsight, we could have done it you know, at slightly higher construction costs. Uh, but the paradigm now is, is not particularly favorable. Um, it, it's, it's really, really challenging to build yeah. new multifamily, you know, particularly with sort of high-grade commercial construction that, that's required of, of high-rise type projects. Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing that across the board. Yeah. I mean, construction costs are, are really um, preventing projects from moving forward, whether it be on the office sector yeah. or, or on the um, condominium side or, or even on the multifamily side. So yeah. we're seeing that throughout sectors. Um, so here we are. June of 2020, yep. um, you know, really in the in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. and you know, we're starting to see some some projects not move forward. Yeah, projects that had some speculative components to it that the developers are no longer comfortable in in the market. Yeah, and uh, maybe that will uh, adjust some of the pricing. Yeah, and and we'll have. Uh, s some projects move forward. Yeah. Uh, have you seen that yet? So, not? you know, w w I think the verdict is still out. Uh, you know, the jury is out. We're, um, we put this high-rise project sort of uh, on the shelf um, prior to COVID-19 because we were struggling with these construction costs. Um, you know, as I said, we're coming in with construction costs of, you know, 325 bucks a square foot, and, and, and it just doesn't work for, um, you know, multifamily for rent uh, in, in the current environment. Um, we're hopeful um, that you know the, the rents may hold and and the construction costs uh, you know may mod moderate. So so that's certainly a hope. I, th I think it's too soon to tell, but but we're clearly in a very deep recession. We don't know how long the recession is going to be, but but there's no doubt it's deep. We've already got you know very very substantial unemployment. Um, does that change the posture of um, trade subcontractors in in Maine? I'm, you know frankly I'm I'm hopeful. Um, you know, from from 2015 when we built the Hiawatha to you know, give you one example, um, when we're trying to build this high rise in town, you know, the, the sort of unit cost for plumbers doubled. Wow. Um, and you know, the cost of PVC piping didn't go up. Um, you know, the cost of cast iron didn't go up. Um, and so you wonder how how, how did the cost double? Mm -hmm. um, and I think. It, it, it's simply a, a function of attitude, where, where these plumbing contractors, I think, are, are doing extremely well. There's a lack of competition because it's very, very difficult to hire. And very um, strong demand. Strong demand, and, mm -hmm. and so they're naming their price. And, yeah. and so certainly, you know, one of the impacts of a, of a recession is, is that, um, you know, buyers tend to have more pricing power than, than sellers. And so we'll see if there's a shift in the paradigm. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see you know, some moderation in construction costs. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. It'll allow some of these projects to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, when, you, when you're looking at that capital stack and you're, and you're looking at the cost side of things, um, you know, we've, we've got some economic incentive tools also. I yeah. mean, there are, you know, sometimes you see cities doing TIFFs or you see yeah. opportunity zones or mm -hmm. have, you, have you utilized any, um, any incentives or are you seeing places where um, where that can really impact your your capital stack in a positive way yeah so good question I mean my attitude has always been that we are going to try to build our projects without government participation without incentives um, because they come with strings um, no doubt about it whether it's you know additional deed restrictions for affordable housing or whether it's um, 
you know, restrictions on, on you know, construction wage rates. Um, you know, it, there's always sort of a catch, and our feeling has always been that, you know, the, 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 if we can create a clean deal um, without any subsidy, um, we're going to go forward with, with you know, fewer, um, you know, restrictions and, and obstacles. So, so that's been our attitude in the past. Now, um, I've used sort of some of these tax changes as, as somewhat different where, you know, an opportunity zone is a good example where a lot of people are looking at opportunity zones and, um, you know, we can debate it all day long. It seems, you know, uh, uh, strange that um, there's an opportunity zone in, in the most prosperous sort of um, parts of downtown Portland. But uh, that being said, we all need to sort of play the, you know, play the hand that we're dealt. Um, so for this high rise project, we were looking at an opportunity zone um, um, fund. And, um, you know, the view on opportunity zones is that, they don't make bad deals good. Uh, they make good deals better. Um, right. And that you know, um, a, a reduction in your tax rate uh, on a project with no profit is not going to do you much good. And so um, you know, I, 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 we have seen some people sort of looking at this um, opportunity zone as a silver bullet, and, and, and I think it's not that. So, so that's one of the examples. Yeah. Um, you and, know, the, and for the listeners that, that aren't aware of opportunity zones, uh, essentially, it allows for um, capital gains capital to be invested into new construction and development projects, and, and you're able to defer the payment of those capital gains for a period of time, yeah. um, and, and then actually have, uh, have no capital gains on the appreciation of that asset when it's, when it's sold or refinanced in the future. So it's a, it's a huge potential benefit, but you're right, the deal still has to make yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, back to tax credits. So on the Mercy Hospital deal, we certainly plan to use historic tax credits. Um, and, um, you know, we're going to redevelop the existing hospital building into, you know, a, a large number of, of multifamily for rent units, maybe some for sale units as well on the top floors, um, if we decide that makes sense. But, yep. but um, so, you know, we're talking about doing, you know, a couple hundred sort of market rate type units on that campus. In addition to um, Community housing of Maine Chom, which will build about 100 uh, low low income housing tax credit uh, units. So great. Um, so yeah, that's an exciting project where where there'll certainly be some tax credits involved, and whether we seek some sort of TIF um, from the city, uh, you know, remains to be seen. We'll certainly have that conversation with them. Yeah. So a, a couple of these projects that you've mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned like Mercy, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, that's that's in a partnership uh, yep. with with another group, the New Height Group. Yep. Um, the the Hiawatha project, I believe, was done with partners, and I, mm -hmm. I think most of your projects have been done with partners. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and why you've decided to to work with partners on different projects. If you see a benefit to it, yeah. Or... Yeah. So so everyone's different, and and um, <clears throat> I hope I can disclose you're a partner, and and yeah. um, you know happy to have you as one. Um, but so, you know, Mercy is an interesting deal where, where New Height Group um, really sort of um, began that project and, and negotiated a, a purchase and sale agreement with Mercy and, and sort of invited Redfern into the deal. And we're very, very happy to be partners with them. And, and they're wonderful partners. And we have, you know, really a shared vision for what ought to happen there and, and a commitment to quality and commitment to environmental sustainability and, and all of those things. So, so a really, really good fit. Um, each of my projects has been different from a partnership perspective. Um, uh, as you mentioned, my wife is my partner in all of them, so we co-own all of these projects together through Redfern Properties, which is sort of our, our, our entity, our vehicle. Um, you know, a lot of developers work differently. Um, you know, our 
our goal with these properties is to own them forever. And sometimes we drive our kids around town and you know tell them, you know, I hope you like that building because you're going to own it one day. And and uh, they're completely uninterested <laughs> at this point. I hope that changes at um, at some point. But but. Um, you know, we're from here, we're committed to the community, and, and we're really trying to create, um, you know, generational assets that, um, that we're going to want to own for a long time. And that guides a lot of the decisions we make in construction, um, the materials we use, the, um, you know, the decisions we make about architecture and, and design and quality and, and all those things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you need capital, too. Um, and our, our pool of capital is, is certainly not, um, you know, un, unlimited. So... Um, We've structured each of our deals differently. You know, on the 89 Anderson deal, you're, you're our, our one and only partner. Um, on West End Place, we have a, a pool of partners where we own 50% of the deal, they own 50% of the deal. Um, Hiawatha was the first time that I had done a structure, sort of a preferred promote structure, um, where we brought in Tom Watson and, and some of his uh, partners as our, our investor. And, and um, you know, um, Tom and Port Property Management is, is more of a strategic investor than sure. that we've had in, in other places. And they're the property manager. They do a wonderful job at property management. Um, Tom and, and his crew own more multifamily units than anybody around here and um, is an incredible uh, resource. Um, and so, so that's more of a strategic partner. Yeah. Um, uh, on Mercy, we brought in some capital partners as well. And, and so every deal looks a little different. Um, sometimes the partners are strategic. Um, sometimes they're provi providing passive capital. Um, we're a little different in some than, than, than some developers in that our goal is to own meaningful percentages of all of the properties that we develop and own. Whereas you know some developers are are more nearly playing with exclusively with other people's capital and and um, you know trying to get as many irons in the fire as they possibly can. Right. Um, we're more nearly trying to put a lot of eggs in, in you know, a few baskets that we feel very, very strongly about and have you know, high conviction. Yeah, well, it's, it's proved to be a good model. Yeah. You know, the other, the other interesting thing that you talked about is you know, generational assets and, and these partnerships. I also feel like in your developments, um, the community and the city you know, plays, plays a part in that role as, as a, not necessarily a partner, but you're, you're really, um, it's important to you to develop those strong relationships in, in these developments with the neighborhoods. I think we're more proactive than a lot of developers about engaging with neighbors, engaging with community. You know, all these neighborhoods in Portland have neighborhood associations and creating those relationships. Um, you know, development is hard and, and there's, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, you know, challenging development culture in Portland. Um, I've talked to some sort of you know, national developers in different parts of the country. And, and the Northeast in general sort of has a, has a reputation for having, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say anti-development cultures because I don't think, you know, it's necessarily anti-development, but there's this sense that um, we all should have a say in what happens. Uh, well, we don't with the, like change necessarily we, we, yeah, either, right? Yeah, but we also have, we have, we have a say in what happens with, our, with the land in, in our neighborhood. And you, yeah. you know, go to a place like Texas, for example, and it's, um, you know, it's wild, wild west. You, if you own the land, you build whatever the hell you want, and nobody's going to say anything about it. Um, that's not how it works around here. And, and so to be an effective developer in Portland, it's, it's really important to be able to build those relationships and, and you know, build some trust. Um, I've always tried to make myself very, very accessible um, to neighbors when we're going in and having hard discussions, whether it's about zoning or, you know, or, or site plan and building new buildings that are bigger and and, um, and, and taller than anything that's ever been there before. I mean, these are hard discussions and we need to respect that, um, you know, there are certain people who, who don't want to see 
things change or, or you know, have reasons to, to, to protect the, you know, the existing um, you know, built environment. Yeah, well, I think that level of transparency and communication and openness is, is really important yeah. for uh, just gaining trust. Right. I, I, I do too. I would give that yeah. advice to any sort of you know young developer, and, and you know people come and, and seek out advice from me now that you know like like I sought from 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 from, 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 from Joe Bolas. Um, you know I, I don't tell them that um, that uh, they need a day job, um, but I do tell them that they ought to talk uh, you know to, to, to neighbors and get out in front of you know any of these sort of issues and, and understand the you know understand the the politics and the sentiment in, in the neighborhoods in, in which they're trying to de to develop. Yeah. What what else do you tell uh, you know those those burgeoning young yeah, uh, so developers? Yeah. It, so it's 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 interesting, and I, and I, I mean, I, I always encourage them or discourage them. You know, I think I tell them it's hard. You know, and and um, the the last you know the the Great Recession where you know it was sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation um, was really really hard for my wife and I. I mean, you know, we were you know there were a number of moments where we're saying, all right, you know. Um, you know, she's sort of saying, I think you kind of need to go get a real job that, you know, that, that you know, that, that pays a paycheck. Um, and we were sort of setting deadlines and saying, all right, you know, how long can we weather this storm without getting paid? And, um, and you know, As you it, see your savings account yeah, dwindle yeah, each month. A, a, and, yeah. Absolutely. You know, we had, we had a couple good years, you know, we, um, from, you know, 2006 to, you know, to 2008. And, and then, you know, all hell broke loose, you know, in the economy. And it was really, really hard. So, so I, you know, I don't discourage anybody. It's been, you know, a wonderful life for for me being a developer. For you know, being sort of um, self-employed has been wonderful, and I can coach my kids, you know, um, sports teams, and, and have the flexibility that I need. And, and you know, that part of it is wonderful. Um, but being on your own is hard. And um, and you know, some people are cut out for not getting a paycheck every two weeks, and some people aren't. And and I encourage people to you know to, to look in the mirror and 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 decide. You know which type are you? Yeah, um, it's not for the faint of it's, heart. It's not for it's not for the faint of heart. And yeah. and and not only do you have to be good, you've got to have good instincts. You've got to have good judgment. Um, you got to have a lot of cojones, um, but you also got to get lucky. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we talked about that. Where, where timing is important, um, and and you got to you got to be a little bit lucky to be successful as a real estate developer. Yeah. Well, there's risks and there's calculated risks. Yeah. Right. And and it seems like. You know, you're you're taking some large risks yeah. on a lot of these projects. I remember one of your first uh, major developments, Munjoy Heights, yeah. which was, you know, really an incredible project. It's yeah. it's on Munjoy Hill. Um, how many different property owners did you have to go to yeah. to, to cobble together yeah. the land for that development? Yeah, in terms of degree of difficulty, still by far the the most challenging thing that Redfern Properties has ever taken yeah. on. Yeah. So there were there were eight source parcels um, that we had to negotiate. And really, sort of line up eight closings, and that you know, if one person bagged out, you know, none of it really sort of worked. And yeah. so, so there were eight properties, you know, seven which were sort of critical to the project, um, and having to negotiate with them without sort of knowing how much leverage they really had over you, and getting all of these things um, to come together. Um, you know, the the neighborhood resistance was intense. There were a bunch of um, I'll never forget it. I had to hire an arborist. There were all these. Um, you know, trees that people sort of viewed as, as these wonderful trees. It turns out they were Norwegian maples, which are an invasive species, you know, not, <laughs> not native to Maine. Um, so I had to march an arborist into uh, the planning board um, late one night to, 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 to explain that. But it was a, a path with Portland Trails um, yep. called the Jack Path. And so we worked very, very closely with Portland Trails to create easements and, and to create 
new pathways and, and new pedestrian sort of access ways. We built a stair up East Cove Street. So, so a really challenging project is on the side of a, a pretty steep hill, um, but in, in many ways one of the most, you know, maybe the most satisfying project that I've ever done. You know, really, really high degree of difficulty. Yeah. We did it without much cap at the time. We didn't have much capital of our own to invest. So yeah. um, just a lot of moving pieces. And, and um, yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs> and it worked out well. It worked. And, it, it, and it's beautiful and it'll stand the test of time. I, 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 I hope so. Very yeah. prominent. I hope so. So when you, um, when you look at opportunities going forward, mm -hmm. what do you see as, you know, we're, we're obviously, I, you've said this to me before, you know, we're the, we're the, we're the tail um, yeah. in, in this whole thing. We need strong companies that mm -hmm. provide good jobs, yeah. that um, provide people that are going to be uh, good, strong renters yeah. in, in these buildings that you're yeah. developing. Um, so what are Maine's um, strengths, but also <clears throat> its hindrances uh, to, to future growth, do you think? I'm gonna talk about Portland, because you know, Maine and Portland is, are, you know, Portland's very different from Skowhegan, yeah. um, you know, and very, very different set of issues. Um, you know, Portland has been wonderful for, for Redfern Properties, a wonderful place to develop, and it's really driven just by the attractiveness of our, our community more than anything, right? When we've got um, a, a beautiful harbor and we've got a, you know, a wonderful quaint old port and um, you know, we've got this fabulous arts culture that's been there for, you know, for a long time. We've got a food culture that's emerged maybe more recently, but um, is equally important to the draw of, of Portland. So a lot of really, really appealing things going on. Um, what I think we've seen over the, the last you know, 10 years or so is, is also more of sort of an entrepreneurial culture around town where, um, you know, and, and you see these, they're your clients, but, but every day you hear about a new company, a small company in Portland doing really cool things, um, you know, selling to a, a, you know, a national or even an international market. Um, and so I see more and more of this stuff happening. Um, and I think that's so key to you know, P Portland's, you know, sustainability and, 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 and success. Yeah. Um, what we started to see in the last couple of years is, and, and you know, before this COVID-19 pandemic, I, I had never been more bullish on Portland. You know, a couple of years ago, Wex making, you know, a really big, important decision to move its headquarters downtown. And um, you're seeing, you know, Sun Life, um, yeah. you know, uh, committing to build a building downtown. Um, right, I mean, so, yeah. so we're seeing real office, not, you know, not construction. Um, and then I thought the Rue Institute announcement is, is enormous. Um, when you ask about sort of what are the impediments, you know, to, to, to Portland, um, you know, becoming a, an even more prosperous city, uh, you know, a lot of people point to tax climate in Maine. I'm, I'm sort of dubious about that. I mean, if you look at California, California's a high tax state and, and they've got the greatest entrepreneurial companies in the world. And New York's a high tax state and they've got the, you know, the wealthiest finance companies in the world. So, you know, I think Maine's tax climate could be better, and I think there are things that can happen, but I don't see that as, as a major impediment. Um, I think if Portland um, could add one, you know, magically add one piece that would, would make it phenomenal, it would be a great university. Yeah. Um, you know, a, 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 a national-scale research university. And, and, you know, USM is, is, is working really hard and they're trying, but they've got a lot of constraints. Um, you know, I, I think the Rue Institute announcement, this... this um, you know, investment in um, bringing, you know, really, really high quality, higher education research to, to Portland could be a real game changer. Transformational. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've got to be 
growing our workforce and in the types of jobs that are going to be, you know, 21st, um, you know, 21st century jobs. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, before COVID, I, I had never been more bullish um, on Portland and, and, and bullish on the housing market. Um, you know, as we've, we've discussed, we're struggling with construction costs, but um, we're certainly committed to building, you know, a number of housing units and, in, 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 you know, hundreds, if not thousands of housing, housing units throughout, you know, the, the, you know, the future of, of Redfern properties, whatever that is. Um, you know, how so you haven't been, so you've been bullish and, and now are you, are you still bullish or yeah, how I mean, are you? I, I think long-term it's hard to say that anything's changed, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're in a deep recession. We don't know how long the recession's going to be. Um, we've got to sort of, um, you know, temper our enthusiasm for the short and medium term and, and see how this plays out. I mean, there, there's going to be pain. I mean, you know, um, uh, unemployment is high. Uh, we're already seeing some impact to you know to to our portfolio. I mean, there's more people, you know, fewer people who can pay the rent. Um, you know, companies have ceased their hiring. Um, you know, recent college grads who were going to get hired are, are you know their job offers have been withdrawn. So um, this is going to impact us, and this is going to impact vacancy rates and likely rents uh, in the short and medium term. So yeah, we've we've got to rethink yeah. our pro formas for the projects that are. On the table and and think about you know what what the appropriate timing is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, as you as you look forward, you've touched on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you if you have your crystal ball for for what uh, Portland will look like over the course of the next ten years, yeah. what, what what do you see? You know, I, I think um, continued growth. I think you know when you look at the built environment, there's still a lot of surface parking lots. You know, around downtown Portland. Right. Um, there's enormous opportunity. I mean, we haven't gotten into it, but um, you know, I like to talk about what a sustainable city looks like and what a sustainable planet looks like because I think what we're doing um, contributes to those ends. Um, you know, my view is Portland should have 100,000 people, not 66,000. You know, we've been stuck on 65 or 66 or 67,000 for, you know, I think for the past, you know, four decades, right? Yeah. We built new housing, but these families, you know, the, the, the families on Munjoy Hill that had, you know, seven people living in, you know, in, in a small house are gone. And, and we've got a, you know. In the a, early 20th century, there were way more people in Portland. That's right. And yeah. so, yeah, we've, we've got singles and couples, you know, buying the housing units and, and you know, large families leaving, so, so our population has been stagnant. Um, we need to have a more walkable city. Uh, we need to have uh, you know, a more accessible city. I think you know, investment in transit um, is critical for Portland to take the, you know, the next step to be you know, a, a truly great small city. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a long way to go with respect to transit. So you know, those are the things that I'm, I'm, I'm focused on. You know, what, what can make Portland great? I think the university, the, the Rural Institute is a great start. Um, you know, real investment in mass transit, um, in, you know, transit-oriented development. Can we build the Forest Ave corridor and have a, you know, a, if, if not a streetcar, you know, a, a really sort of um, user-friendly, you know, bus system. And, and um, you know, th those things would go a long way. But I think the, um, you know, the upside for Portland is, 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 um, is immense. And I think, you know, the, the greatest days are ahead. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, uh, we'll end. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us today on The Bolus Beat. If you'd like to learn more about The Bolus Company, please check out our website at www.bolus.com, or you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and The Bolus Co. on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Drew. That was fun.